Well, this is kind of cool. Uh, looks to me like we either uh, need a fourth service or we need to finish that building, just saying. It's kind of exciting. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I had to get used to when I first moved to Boone a long time ago was uh, that ASU has their Easter break and the students, many of the students leave. And then uh, spring break from the public school is always a week after uh, Easter. And so everybody leaves, except you. I'm glad that you are uh, here this morning. Well, in the Wisconsin state capitol last week, it was Passion Week. The atheist group Freedom From Religion Foundation placed this placard, uh, which reads, Nobody died for our sins. Jesus Christ is a myth. If that wasn't so sad, it would be a bit humorous, because you can deny lots of things. The reality of Jesus is not one of them. Now, I suppose to be intellectually uh, honest, I suppose by Jesus Christ, they were referring to all that the Bible and we Christians believe about Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he was crucified, buried, and raised again on the third day for our sins. By the way, this same group also formally protested Two crosses, one western, one eastern, on the side of a public municipal building in the small town of Stratton, Ohio. How many of you know where Stratton is? So, like, how do they? I mean, don't they have something else to do? All of this highlights, as I'm sure that you have noticed, the increasingly non-Christian atmosphere in which we live. And perhaps... Perhaps, with all of the anti-Christian rhetoric... Maybe in the quietness of your own soul, you've entertained a doubt or two. Is this Christian faith really true? I mean, come on. The whole story is rather spectacular. That God would create a world for which he would then die. The story is so spectacular that even his very first disciples didn't quite get this whole crucifixion, resurrection thing. I was reading in Mark 9 uh, this week, Jesus and his inner circle, that's Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends and disciples had just descended from the Mount of Transfiguration. Another spectacular story. Uh, I won't take the time to tell it. But as they were walking along, Jesus, quote, um, gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So he said, don't tell anyone about the transfiguration until after the resurrection. And the very next verse says, they, that's like Peter, James, and John, seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. R really? I mean, this is like Peter, James, and John. Jesus had told him in chapter 8, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the, chief, uh, by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and, and, three, and after three days rise again. And, and he was stating the matter plainly. These guys were a little slow. And yet, um, in the next chapter, here we find them confused about ri what rising from the dead meant. Because it is, let's be honest, a rather spectacular story. Now, now the truth is, some of you can't remember not 
believing the story. I mean, you've heard about Jesus since you were a wee tyke, uh, his death and, and resurrection. But I want you this morning to try and transport yourself back to that first Easter, that first Sunday. John chapter 20, after the resurrection, actually says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So try to grasp the spectacular nature of this story. Try to understand what these early disciples were going through on that first Good Friday, that first Holy Saturday, and even the first Sunday Easter Sunday morning. They had pinned all of their hopes and dreams on this guy. Kind of like you. And then along come the doubters. So what are you gonna what are you gonna do? Jesus, I, it wasn't the he wasn't the Messiah. This whole story of Jesus is a myth. They'd been convinced he was the one. For three years, many of them had given their lives to him. They left homes and livelihoods and families uh, to follow Jesus. They had watched him heal the sick, raise the dead, calm storms, walk on water, feed thousands, drive out demons. Kind of spectacular. And I mean, come on, his words, no one ever spoke like this man. The things that he said made their hearts come alive. And, that, and the way he battled those Pharisees, that was awesome. And he spoke of a, of a kingdom. I mean, just last Sunday, the crowds had welcomed him into Jerusalem. They, they said, Hosanna uh, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I, this... This had to be the one, right? You can see the disciples kind of marching in beside him. He's kind of on that little donkey. And they're marching in beside him. They're high-fiving each other, thinking, this is it, man. The kingdom is here, but now he's dead. So also many today around us seem to be saying he's dead. It's just a myth. You really going to believe this nonsense? We know the events of that fateful week, the opposition from the Pharisees, the religious establishment had reached a rather fever pitch. They were out to get him. His popularity with the crowds began to wane rapidly. Of course, it didn't help that he went to the temple and began overturning tables, driving out the money changers. By Wednesday, Satan had entered into Judas and agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. By Thursday, Jesus was talking about his coming suffering, that suffering language again. Didn't get it. But now he's talking about leaving the disciples and going to a place they can't come. What? That night, he had done something rather strange with the bread and the wine from the Passover meal. He had, he had given it to his disciples, telling, hey, this is my body, which will be broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. They just exchanged bewildered looks. Then came that horrible day, Good Friday. Day is also known as Holy Friday or Great Friday, or which seems more appropriate to me, Black Friday. The disciples had, had fled from Jesus the, the night before when the Roman cohort came to get him. Uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. They did. Only Peter and John seemed to follow, but that from a distance. 
And Peter's loyalty, come on, only went so far. He denied not once but three times that he even knew the Lord. The rooster crowed. Peter wept. This whole thing was falling apart. Trial was speedy. It was whisked from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin, then to Pilate, to Herod, and then back to Pilate again. Pilate questioned him and then was ready to release him. Last week we saw there was this moment, this glimmer of, of hope. But, but the people, they asked for Barabbas, a folk hero to be sure, but a common criminal, a murderer, to be released instead. Well, what then do I do with Jesus, Pilate asked. Crucify him, the crowd shouted. Crucify him. I mean, why? What, what, what bad has he done? This had not figured into their plans. Then it happened, after being beaten, he was led away to a hill right outside of Jerusalem to the place of the skull uh, in Hebrew or Aramaic, um, Golgotha uh, in Latin, Calvary. They nailed him to a cross with robbers on each side of him. Through the day, people walked by wagging their heads, mocking, cursing him. You who saved others, come down and, and save yourself. Then, now notice what they said. Then we will believe your claim that you are the Son of God because right now we don't believe it. Today, many don't believe it. It is, after all, a spectacular story. Time seemed to drag on for hours. From 12 noon till 3 in the afternoon, there was this strange darkness over the, land, uh, over the land. And finally, he cried out with a loud voice, It is finished, bowed his head, gave up his spirit. That's it. It's done. It's wasted three years of our lives. So it was a so-called high Sabbath, a Sabbath of Passover week. Uh, they did not want to leave the bodies hanging overnight. The guards came to break the legs of those on their respective crosses. You see, with broken legs, they could not push themselves up to get the necessary air, and they would soon suffocate. They came to Jesus. They found him already dead, but a, but a soldier pierced his side, his heart, just to be sure. I don't know if it was just being mean or assuring his death. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the one who came to him by night, uh, received permission to retrieve the body. They wrapped him in burial spices, and as, as was the custom of the Jews, placed him in a newly hewn to tomb, and then they rolled this large stone over the entrance. Black. Done. Over. What would they do now? Passover. Uh, and high Sabbath, having been observed, it's done. It's Sunday now. And thousands of pilgrims who had made their way to Jerusalem, actually hundreds of thousands who had made their way to Jerusalem, began to file out of, of the city, making their way back home. Some of Jesus' disciples with them. After all, there was no reason to stay. They walked along the dusty roads, leaving their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations behind. Sad. They were grief-stricken. <laughs> it had been great while it lasted. Now, it's, it, it's over. Another short-lived Christ, another short-lived would-be Messiah, another 
short-lived religion, died a very slow and painful death. He's just a myth. Sure, it's true that that morning some of the women had made their way to the tomb to, to, to put some spices on Jesus' body, and they came back with this rather wild tale that some angels appeared to them and said that Jesus was alive. They tried desperately to make sense of the events of the past few days. <laughs> what is this meaning of this rising from the dead? Uh, they were confused. They were dazed. They were fearful. They were doubtful. You see, seeing was believing. They'd seen nothing. That was the sense. This was the mood of that first Easter Sunday morning. What are we going to do now? I guess we can go back to fishing. Go back to the tax collector's booth. Maybe we can look for another one. Which brings me to the text I want to share with you this Easter morning found in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. As much as possible, I want you to grasp the emotions of those early disciples on this Sunday morning. It's probably about this time of the day. Two disciples, one named Cleopas, the other one unnamed, were on their way. They were with the group of people leaving Jerusalem. They're headed home to Emmaus. My hope this morning, listen up, my hope is to encourage faith in the midst of doubt. My hope is that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes supernaturally of dead hearts like he does in this story, so that you can see and believe. Look at it with me, Luke 24, verse 13. We'll just read part of the story to begin with. Verse 13 says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself <laughs> approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, hey, what are these things that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one? You hear the frustration? Are you the only one? Visiting Jerusalem and, and unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the, the, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping. It's, it's over now. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision. By the way, it wasn't a vision. But that's the only thing they can do to try and figure this thing out. A vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and... And they found it just exactly as the woman had also said. But notice, but him they did 
not see. Finish the rest of the story in just a little bit. The outline of our story that we're going to, as we make our way through, it goes like this. We're going to see Jesus concealed and Jesus misunderstood and, and then Jesus gloriously revealed. And that's my prayer again for you today is that he will reveal himself to you in, in, in new ways as followers of Christ and perhaps a first time for those who are not. Luke says, and behold, that's his way of saying, uh, pay attention. Like I say, listen, he, he, he makes sure that we understand that it was the very day, the first Easter, that these two disciples were traveling to Emmaus. Again, one's named Cleopas, the other uh, unknown. They're not, one, they're not part of the 11, since they go back and report to the 11 um, what happened. But they were apparently part of the inner circle of, dis of disciples. See, they knew where to go to find the 11. And, and they knew that the women had come back with this report. But, hey, they're making their way home. There's nobody to follow anymore. And on the way to Emmaus, 60 state, literally stadia, about seven miles, we think, northwest of Jerusalem, as they traveled, they talked with one another. A stranger joined them. Again, hundreds of thousands of people streaming out of the city in the various roads. This would not have been unusual. Of course, Luke is telling us a rather masterful story here. We know as we read that this stranger was Jesus. In fact, Luke says it this way, Jesus himself approached and begin traveling with them. That's in the emphatic. So I said, Jesus himself. This is none other than Jesus. But they didn't know it. His identity was somehow concealed from them. In fact, we're told that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. They were physically blinded to his identity. We shouldn't assume that Jesus looked a, a, a lot different. They, he, they were just supernaturally hindered from recognizing him. But I just want to stop right there because what a beautiful picture uh, that is of the truth that Jesus, our faithful Savior, is here. He's with us. He promised never to leave nor forsake us by his Spirit. These disciples are perplexed. They're disheartened. They were in the throes of deep despair. They didn't know what they were going to do. You ever been in that kind of situation? And yet Jesus walked right beside them. They didn't know it, but he was there. He's always, always there, even when we don't understand what's going on around us, even when we're unaware of his presence and forget. Well, once he joined them, he said, well, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another? The idea is that he kind of walked along with them for a while, heard what they were saying, and then said, hey, what you talking about? Which brings us to our second point, Jesus misunderstood. The response of these disciples makes it clear they had no idea what they were talking about. Luke paints a picture. The disciples are they're on the way to Emmaus. They're walking along. Jesus comes along. They continue their journey. They're talking and discussing. That idea carries the idea of they were tossing thoughts, ideas, back and forth to each other, trying to figure this thing out. They did not, they did not get this crucifixion, resurrection thing. All the while, they're walking and talking. They're walking until Jesus asks, what in the world are you talking about? 
The picture is that the, this, these two disciples stop abruptly. They can't believe their ears. What? Are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem this past week who doesn't know what happened? You must have your head in the sand. You, you must have been holed up somewhere. Everybody, everybody's heard this news. Where have you been? And they stopped, stood still, looking sad. The word actually is gloomy, dejected, downcast. They had, at this point, taken all they could. They had been on an emotional roller coaster, marching into the city the week before to the Hosannas, leaving the city a week later, leaving a dead Christ behind. And they can't believe what this stranger just asked. And, and, and you, then you hear Jesus very gently say, what things? You see, the, the, the truth is, is Jesus is drawing them out. They had some things to learn. They were discussing along the way what had happened. They were perplexed. They were confused. They were disheartened. They were dejected. And Jesus is about to share some news with them that they desperately needed to hear, and he brings them along very gently. And you see, it's very encouraging to know that not only does Jesus promise to never leave us, we see that he gently, as a shepherd, guides us, leads us, instructs us, and bears with us, even when we're quite stupid. He's patient with our misunderstandings, with our limited knowledge, with our doubts, with our ignorance. He gently instructs his followers. You see, in this conversation, we see three significant misunderstandings on the part of these disciples. And frankly, three misunderstandings that exist to this day. The first one is found in verse 19. They saw Jesus as only a prophet. I mean, granted, he was mighty in word and deed in the sight of God and the people, but he was still just a, a prophet. And while it is true that Jesus was the prophet, he was also priest and king. He's also the son of God. People make the same mistake today. They acknowledge that there was this man who lived in, in history, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, who, who lived during this time period. You can't, I mean, you can't deny that. Uh, the evidence is there. They, 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 they see that he did some good things. He was a good man, had some good teachings, did some good things. There were even those kind of crazy miracles that people seem to have trouble discounting. But, 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 but hey, that's all. They refuse to acknowledge him for who he truly was, the very son of God. You see, all of that is a myth. The second misunderstanding is found in verse 21. They didn't understand that, that Jesus had to die. In fact, notice they said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's past tense. <laughs> we were, but it's done. It's over now. We got to hitch our wagon to somebody else. See, the Jews then, and frankly, the Jews today, were expecting a Messiah who would bring physical rescue, bring military redemption. They were looking for a Messiah who would bring freedom from tyranny to Rome. Today, they're looking for freedom from tyranny to the Middle East, I guess. But the fact is, Jesus came to bring them, and frankly, us, spiritual redemption. He came to save us from the tyranny of sin, and that required payment, a propitiation that required his death. 
You see, there could be no mistaking the, the time of his death. He was the Passover lamb. He came to take away the sin of the world. And they didn't get that. Sheep dying all around them. And they missed the Lamb of God. Third misunderstanding, seen in verses 22 to 24, and it has to do with this whole resurrection thing. Very simply, they did not get it. They were, as many are today, perplexed doubters. While Jesus had told them plainly, I'm going to die, raise again the third day, they didn't get it. In Matthew 16, after Peter makes his great pronouncement, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, we read from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and raised up the third day. They didn't get it when he said that in Matthew chapter 16. Peter even opposed the idea, not while I'm alive. That very morning, some of their own women had come from the tomb and told them that Jesus' body wasn't there. The angels had appeared, said he was alive. Problem is, women then were not considered reliable witnesses. Just want to be clear, I'm speaking historically. Women then were not considered reliable witnesses. So some of the disciples, uh, we know from another gospel, Peter and John ran to examine the evidence themselves. They found an empty tomb, but him, but him they did not see. The him, again, is in the emphatic. Found everything, but him. The implication is since they didn't see him, they did not believe. And what should have been a day of hope realized was a day of hope lost. Let's go home to Emmaus. Maybe I can get my old job back. So today, many don't believe the resurrection. It is, after all, too spectacular. You can present them with all of the evidence. They still won't believe it. Just a myth. Him, you see, they do not see. Come down from the cross, then we'll believe. I won't believe it till I put my hands in the nail. You see, until I can touch him and see him and feel him. They don't believe. And they come up with all kinds of theories to discount the miracle of the resurrection. You've heard of these. First one is that stolen body or that conspiracy theory. I love this. In fact, you remember from Matthew 28 that it was, that it was actually the chief priest, the religious leaders who would come up with this one. Soldiers show up to say, hey, his body's gone. And they pay them. They bribe them and say, tell everybody that the you fell asleep and that the disciples came in the night and stole his body. So that was widely spread to this day, Matthew says, which I think begs an important question. I think. Why would all but one, not counting Judas, why would all but one of the 12 disciples give their lives in martyrdom for a myth? Right? I mean, I could see them kind of carrying on the charade, right? We, we were pretty popular when we were hanging around Jesus. Let's tell everybody he rose from the dead, steal his body, hide it, and then we could still be popular, maybe get some food along the way. And it seems to me that, you know, when you can make your way through one, two, three, four, eight, nine martyred, uh, martyrs, that the other three can say, hey, hold on just a minute. Let me just take you to the body. We're just kidding. Second explanation frequently offered is the wrong tomb theory. 
the women were the only ones who saw where Jesus was laid, and so they simply made a mistake. In the wee hours of the early morning, while it was still dark, they made their way to the wrong tomb. It was empty. I'm barely going to dignify that theory with a response. Certainly, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus knew where they had laid the body. Third explanation, if you don't want to believe the resurrection, maybe this is your choice as the disciples wanted to believe it. They wanted to believe it so badly, they just imagined it. That's right. The women, uh, Cleopas and this other unnamed disciples, all 11 of them that evening, Peter had a personal appearance, James did too, and 500 of them at one time, all of them had a group hallucination at the same time. Let me tell you a significant problem with that theory. It doesn't fit psychologically. Read the gospel accounts. They didn't believe it until Jesus appeared to them. They did not imagine this. Fourth explanation. I'll stop with this one since the rest continue to get more ridiculous. This is the swoon theory. Again, you've heard this. Jesus didn't actually die. He was just mostly dead. He fainted. When they wrapped his body with ointments and placed him in a cool tomb, it revived him. Never mind the scourging, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion, the nail thrust through his hands and his feet, the spear thrust in his side, the loss of blood. When he was wrapped with those linens and 75 pounds of spices, that's what John says, 75 pounds of spices, he somehow had enough strength to revive, unwrap himself, move the stone, and subdue the soldiers. That takes more faith than that he was just raised from the dead. There are all kinds of ways, you see, to deny the resurrection if you want to, and many do. But the evidence is irrefutable. Irrefutable. You must do something with this risen Savior. The early disciples did not want to believe it either. Kind of ironic. These two would not believe because they did not see Jesus, and yet Jesus was right beside them. Do you hear what I just said? The same is true for you. I want to believe, and he's right beside you. Which leads to our third and final point, Jesus revealed, verses 25. Let's read the rest of the story. We haven't read it yet. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they, they approached the, the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. It's kind of cool what you've been saying. For it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were, and I'm going to add the word supernaturally opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight they said to one another were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and, and those who were with them saying this is the eleven saying the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon and then the two began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. In these verses, very quickly, Jesus reveals, is revealed in three 
significant ways. First in the scripture, in verses 25 to 27, he starts by very gently rebuking these men. He doesn't call them fools. He just says they're foolish and slow of heart to understand all that the prophets had spoken. And they had spoken clearly that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to be resurrected and to enter his glory. And Jesus then took them on a survey of the Old Testament and showed how that all of the books, all, whoops, all 39 of them pointed to him, beginning with Moses. That's the first five books. And the prophets, that's pretty much the rest of them. He showed how they all pointed to him. you got to understand something. Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. It's all about him. You see, I don't know what exactly he said, but I, I sure would like to have been there for that Old Testament survey. That would have been good. Maybe he started with Genesis 3.15. We spoke of how Satan would strike Jesus' heel at the crucifixion, but in the end, Jesus would crush his head at the resurrection. Maybe he took them to Genesis 12, who spoke of a descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Maybe he showed them how in Genesis 49, this descendant of Abraham would come through the tribe of Judah and how this scepter, his right to rule, would never depart from his hand. Maybe he narrowed it even further, showing how this descendant, the Messiah, would come through the family of David and that he would sit on David's throne forever. He could have taken them to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which read like newspaper accounts of the crucifixion. He could have gone to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, which speak of the resurrection. He could have taken them to Zechariah chapter which tells how the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Uh, he could have uh, taken them to Zechariah chapter 12, which speaks of them looking on him whom they had pierced years before the Persians ever invented crucifixion. Who knows where he took them? He could have taken them to every book of the Bible because they all point to him. The scripture is the story of Jesus. And having suffered, Jesus entered into his glory. And we remember the words of Jesus in John 13 when Judas left to betray him. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified even in crucifixion. In John 17, when he prayed to his Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the world was. Make no mistake about it, the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, who nobody seemed to get at this point and who so many seemed to doubt today, brought God, the Father, and His Son greatest glory. Secondly, we see that Jesus was revealed to these two disciples, verses 28 to 32. They arrived in Emmaus. Jesus acted as if He were going further. I kind of like that. That gives permission for play, action, pass, and football. You'll figure that out. Um, they, they urged him to stay, and he relented. When, when they sat down to eat, Jesus took the position of host. You see, he had been teaching them, and he began to break the bread. And their eyes were supernaturally open, just as they had been supernaturally closed. And they recognized him. They knew him to be Jesus. They had perhaps seen him. Remember, these are two of his disciples who had followed him. Perhaps they had seen him breaking the bread and feeding the 5,000. 
thousand. They had no doubt seen him break the bread at numerous meals during their travels with him. And while they were not present in the upper room, only the 12 were, it is significant that when Jesus broke the bread, he gave instruction to his followers that when bread is broken, it reminds them of him. And here it happens and they don't even get it. As soon as their eyes are open, he disappeared from their sight. We're going to see in a moment he had another appointment. Notice their response. We're not our hearts burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scripture to us. I want you to understand something. And I need you to listen. I need you to understand something very, very important. One of the greatest proofs of the reality of Jesus Christ, one of the greatest proofs of the crucifixion and resurrection is the somewhat subjective but undeniable reality of his presence in your hearts. We're not our hearts burning within us. The truth burns within. It is undeniable, which is why when I began this morning with the skeptics and atheists denying this spectacular story, most of you got a little irritable. And you don't get it. Because you know in your heart of hearts, no matter what meaningless chatter goes on out there, and no matter how much the hostile culture around us rises, it is true. Finally, I'll just mention this. Jesus was revealed to the 11 by the testimony of these two at the end of the story. They just made the seven-mile trip to Emmaus, but after dinner and Jesus appeared to them, they make the seven-mile trip back. They have to, you see, and I just make a little comment here. When you've seen Jesus, you must tell others. <laughs> it's interesting. They found the 11 to report to them, but the 11 said to them, before they can say anything, the Lord really has risen. He's appeared to Simon. His appearance to Peter is, is only mentioned uh, here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and no details uh, are given. Sometime between when these two left, the disciples in the upper room and their time back, sometime either before or after his appearance to them on the road, Jesus had appeared to Peter. See, I see it this way. He's having his conversation with Cleopas and this other unnamed disciple. He reveals himself to them and then he vanishes because he had to go see Peter. He has appeared making himself undeniably known as risen from the dead. You see, at first they did not get this crucifixion, resurrection thing, but now it was becoming abundantly clear. These two, the 11, maybe even you, have been confused, distraught, discouraged, doubtful. Really? And now to them, and I trust by His Spirit to you, all becomes clear. They and you have not been abandoned. Jesus is not a myth. He is alive. He has entered His glory. He is with them as He is with us. And just as it took a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of two blind men... My prayer is that he will open blind eyes today to the truth of the resurrection. That he will encourage hearts of faithful followers and that he will open 
hearts of dead non-followers and that you will join us. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is an amazing, spectacular, almost unbelievable story. <laughs> it would be unbelievable if it were not for its truth. It would be unbelievable if it was not for all of the credible evidence that exists. And it would be unbelievable were it not for the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. We, we believe. And would you increase our faith? And for those here who maybe who have not yet believed, I pray that supernaturally by your spirit you would open dead hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.